Well, uh, if you're online, you couldn't hear it, but we were having a little bit of fun with that bumper music and, and having a little bit of joy, which is good as citizens of joy, as those who are God's people. Friends, we're saved by God's grace. We are called into his family. What could be better than that? We have joy. And so now it's time for me to talk about warning. <laughs> uh. Well, you know, even with the best of things, we often get warnings, right? You, you, you uh, buy a new car. Put gas into the car because you pull into the station right before you run out of fuel. There are warnings on the pumps, right? There, there are all kinds of warnings in life. Even on good things, there are warnings. And there are warnings in God's kingdom, not warnings because we should live in constant fear as Christians. We should live as people who understand that God has given us his peace, but rather because that joy is so great that we can celebrate that joy, we should want to know the things that can come that can rob that joy from us. And that's what Paul is going to be talking about to us tonight. And let's go ahead and just dig right in to verse 2. Paul says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. It's quite a heavy warning if you think about it. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Look out for those who, in other words, are going to rob you of the very things that you were rejoicing in in the verse we talked about last week. Our challenges are going to be different at times, at times not, but the warning is for us too. It's like if you, you think about if you're going to travel overseas, and, and say you're not traveling overseas to the United Kingdom, or you're not traveling just across the border, a land border to Canada, or, or something like that where we don't even really think about security concerns or, or health concerns. Say you're traveling someplace else, someplace further afield, someplace that maybe has a little less stable government. Maybe you would go, and if you were wise, you would go to the Department of State and read, here are the travel advisories issued by our United States government on traveling to this place. Maybe it says you need these vaccinations. Maybe it says you should be aware there are rebel groups in this area. Dif different things, warnings. And they tell you that because they want to protect the citizens of the United States. As a citizen here, or wherever you may be if you're tuning in online, your, your government, uh, I think most governments in the world put out these sorts of travel bulletins because they want to protect their citizens, to enable them to, to remain their citizens, to not die while traveling, but to return safely. And as we think about this warning, that's how we should look at this. Th this isn't a warning, watch out because maybe God doesn't really want you to be a citizen of heaven after all, a citizen of joy. Rather, God gives us this so that we can be protected as we travel about in the world, and in the world itself, every place we go is essentially going to one of those unstable rebel governments. And as we do so, they wouldn't rob us of the joy that Christ has given us. And as we think about that tonight, let's go ahead and come before our God in prayer and ask that he would help us to see those places where that's a threat in our lives, and not to translate that into constant fear, to hold on to that joy we had a moment ago when the bumper video was playing, 
but be aware so that we can flee those things and run all the more to our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made us people of your kingdom, citizens of your kingdom. And yet we know that you still at this time leave us in this world, and in this world there are all sorts of forces that hate you and hate those who follow you, who would love to see nothing more than to see us stumble, to see nothing more than to see us let go of the joy that you've given us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be wise and discerning, that we would hold on to the truth and run from what is wrong. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Why does Paul offer this warning to us? Why is it here right after he says, rejoice? I don't usually preface warnings with saying rejoice. Rejoice and watch out your car is getting ready to explode. Uh, I wouldn't do that, right? But here's the challenge. We should rejoice, but we should understand that we are going to struggle as people being remade by God because while he has taken us into his kingdom and we can rest securely in that, in the interim time where we find ourselves here and the Holy Spirit is working on us and, and helping us to be more and more like Jesus, there is an awful lot of time where we can still miss out on that joy because we start to fall back into the world. And sometimes that can come from the oddest of places, and that's where we're looking at here, because the people who are the danger, the people that Paul calls dogs here, aren't non-Christians. And let's one-up it a little bit. They're not only already Christians, they're Jewish Christians. In other words, they're the people of God for millennia beforehand. Now they've seen the Messiah, they're following the Messiah why do we need a warning about this particular group? Now, to be clear, Paul is also a Jewish Christian. Most of the early church are Jewish Christians, so it's not the fact that they're Jewish here that is causing this warning, but rather they've misunderstood what's happened when they've gone from the Old Testament people of God to now those who have received the promised Messiah in the New Testament. And so in that, in their misunderstanding... They're not just applying it to themselves, they're applying it to others, and in doing so, they're threatening to rob that joy from them, from the others. And they're threatening to do it while glorying in what seems like their wonderful, important background. We care a lot about backgrounds, don't we? You think about it, most of you are originally from St. Louis, so you already know what question I'm about to mention. Because it is a classic St. Louis question, right? What is it? I don't even need to say it. What is it? Yeah, yeah. And, and see, I threw it all off because I was homeschooled, so, you know, that just blows up the conversation then. Well, why do we ask that? Well, we ask that because you, you find out the high school and you know where the person was. Maybe they went to the same place as you did. Maybe they know the same parts of town that you did. Maybe they're the rival school right? All these different things. And there are some rivalries here in St. Louis, right? I mean, you can definitely feel the difference if you're from North County or South County or West County or St. Charles. Oh boy, St. Charles. They have to watch out for us, folk. Uh, we, we 
kind of get that, right? I mean, we know there's this thing, and I mean, most of it's good-natured, but, you know, part of it, too, is I'm going to ask you these sorts of questions so I can understand where your value is. Oh, you went to the private school. Oh, you went to that school. Oh, you lived in that area, right? We're, we're analyzing, do I want to be around this person? Don't I want to be around this person? And most of the time, it's not that. Most of the time, it's good-natured. For those of you that aren't from St. Louis, I'm not trying to make St. Louis out to be some weird cultish town. Uh, it's not that, but there is an underlying thing. And we find that whether we live here in St. Louis or not, right? We ask different questions. What do you do? Another one, common one, right? And, and we ask that to understand something about that person. And sometimes it's also, as much as we might not want to admit it, do I have anything in common? Do I want to associate with this person? And you find out, oh, this person, we have nothing in common. You know, they, they work like this. And, and then, of course, we backload a bunch of stereotypes about that kind of work. And we say, okay, I, you know, I, we're worlds apart. We, we all have those questions. And, and we use those things even when we kind of wish we didn't. I'd like to think I don't do it or don't do it very much. But it's human nature. And that's what we see here, the, these these leaders, that are these teachers that are coming in, they're often called the Judaizers, uh, are coming in and they're basically saying, where'd you go to high school? And, and they're finding out, wait a second, a bunch of you went to Gentile high. You're not Jewish. You don't practice the Jewish customs. Hmm. Well, we'll let you in, but you need to you need to be hazed a little bit. Basically it, right? We're, we're, you, if you want to be part of the group, then you need to do the things that make you part of the group. That's the basic underlying thing here. We do this today in the church as well, as much as we like to pretend not. What denomination are you? Or maybe, oh, you belong to a denomination. Oh, Right? We have to be careful here. Little Hills, we're, we're not part of a denomination, so we, don't, we can play it the other way, too. And, and those sorts of things play out. Or, or maybe if you're not really sure about denominations, then you say, well, what theologians do you like to read? What podcasts do you listen to? I'm going to see if I can associate with you. Start to connect the dots to understand value. And the danger for the people in Philippi is that as they hear this from these Judaizing teachers, they're going to start to think, well, my value would be in if I follow these people. I'd, my value would be if I switch which podcasts I listen to. My value would be in if I join this denomination or if I threw away denominations. My, my value would be in one of these things. And in that, the danger isn't the things themselves. The danger is that they're forgetting what really matters. The Judaizers have forgotten what really matters. They're looking at these brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, but you haven't become Jewish before you become Christian, so even though you confess Jesus as Lord, we don't have fellowship with you. You need to get the steps in the right order, and you need to become Jewish first, then become Christian, and then we'll have fellowship. And they're forgetting that the thing that has the most value is Jesus. And Paul outlines that in several ways here. And he starts in verse 4 where he wants us to understand this really crucial point, which is that it isn't about who we are. Listen to, to Paul's resume here. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, just like those 
opposing teachers that he's facing. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. He has a bunch of things he's listing out here, but it really boils down to this. I have the background. Everything that a Jew should do, I did. And I went to a really great school, too. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a big deal. Um, and we know that about Paul, actually. Paul was a big deal. Paul was trained. He had the right pedigree. He had the right everything. And some of this gets wrestled with. I mean, the circumcision part is straightforward enough, that, but the other part's like, what does it mean to be a Hebrew of Hebrews? Some have proposed it's because Paul would have had a, a better working or maybe even a fluent knowledge of Hebrew, even though he wasn't originally from Palestine. He was born outside of Palestine. But he still was actually schooled in Hebrew, where many of the Jews that were born outside of Palestine knew Greek instead, like the Gentiles. And Paul obviously knew Greek, but perhaps it was that. But the, it really doesn't matter the exact detail. The point is, everything that would make you think, I'm a really great religious person, I have. You don't have to worry about me. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I've, I read all the right bloggers. I have the systematic theology from the best theologian on my bookshelf. My Bible has underlines everywhere, and the pages are well-worn. And, and I don't have to go back to the index and look where topics are. I have it all memorized. I know it all. That's, that's what Paul's basically saying. I have it down. I, I, I came from a family that was religious enough to make sure everything was right. And that sometimes happens today, too, doesn't it? Where sometimes we kind of think, well, oh, here's someone, lifelong Christian. Don't have any of that messy testimony because everything was right in their lives. They, they have everything down pat. Grew up in a church that, had, that was almost the better part of 200 years old. You had families that had been there for generations. And you could look at it and say, oh, well, how many generations have you been here for? You had that kind of thing. And maybe you've been in a church that's like that. And, and in a sense, we should say, praise God that he's preserved these families and allowed this church to go on. This, this is, again, these things aren't bad in themselves. It's a question of where's the value. And Paul says, whatever things you think are important to being a Christian, I have them more than you do. I, I'm at the top of my class. Don't, don't even try there. I went to the Ivy League Pharisee school. And, and seriously, he did. He went to the best teacher, and he was trained by him. He, he was a rising star Pharisee. Here's someone who's an expert on God's law and has been on the right track from birth. What do we say that's happened in our past that's like that? Maybe it is that that long-time relationship to a church. Obviously, a little different if you're here in a church plant. Although someday, by God's grace, maybe that'll be the case where there are generations here. I, I pray that that's the case. That, we should be praying that there are generations and generations here. That's a good thing. But may we never say, well, 
you're more important because you're second or third or fourth generation. Or I'm a charter member. May not be things like that that add the value. May not be anything, even good things, like growing up in a Christian family. Again, we should celebrate. We should praise God when that happens. And yet, may we not look down on the person that is a new convert, that maybe is a little even rough around the edges, doesn't know when to stand up and sit down, doesn't, doesn't know the songs, doesn't know which books are in the Bible yet. Maybe even has some language that needs to be polished out a little bit. is isn't about who we are. And also isn't about what we've accomplished. And then we see that in the next verse. Paul says, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now you might say, well, this is a funny way to brag to other Christians. I persecuted the church. Isn't Paul shooting himself in the foot here? Well, Paul would say, yes, I am shooting myself in the foot here, but that's not the point. Here, here's the issue. Paul is writing about people who are saying they're not only Christian, but they're also even better because they're practicing all the Jewish law. And they've descended from Abraham. They, they have the inheritance of the people of God. And Paul says, well, I can one-up you there. If your big concern is to say how faithful you are to the Old Covenant, and that's basically what they're saying, they're saying you need to get right with everything in the Old Testament first before you can be a Christian. Well, I did better than that. I had so much zeal for God that I went and persecuted the church, those upstart Christians that, that were trying to focus on the Messiah instead. I said, no, no, we're going to get the Old Testament right and we're going to protect the integrity of the Old Testament. And if that takes killing people that try to distort that, I'll kill them. Now, that sounds really, really weird to us today. But if we turn back to the Old Testament, Numbers 25, we're not going to pull that up today, but, but if, we, if you look later on, you want to take a look there, Numbers 25, fascinating story. You have the, the men of Israel going and taking foreign wives. They're bringing them back into the camp. God had told them not to do that, told them not to do that for a very particular reason, which was if they brought back the foreign wives, they were going to also bring back the foreign gods. They're going to bring back the foreign gods and then they're not going to be pure. They're not going to be zealous for the Lord. And so we're told the story of one of the sons of Aaron who, so disturbed by this occurrence, goes and actually spears one of the men as he's bringing one of the foreign women into the camp. And so it's because he was so zealous for the Lord. Now this is a very special occasion. This is not what we're supposed to do generally. Old Testament, New Testament, uh, just take it up into our own hands and Go say, well, okay, I'll be zealous for the Lord. That's not at all the point. But this is a very special moment in Israel's history as it's being pulled out of Egypt and being given an identity. They're still trying to figure out what they believe. And God says, don't have anything to do with these people. Separate out. And yes, use capital punishment on anyone that won't follow the law. And so one of the priests, someone who represents God, goes and does just that and said to be zealous. So when, when Paul says... I was zealous for the Lord, and we know from Acts exactly what he's talking about, that Paul oversaw the persecution and even martyrdom of early Christians. That's what Paul's thinking of. He's thinking of back then. Oh, the, the priests went and were zealous for the Lord. They were protecting the Lord by going and even executing those who would lead people away from the Lord. Because 
If you think about it, as extreme as that sounds, the point is salvation, life is in the Lord. What do we do today? If, if someone came in here as a terrorist and tried to blow up the building and someone else was able to push them outside and let the bomb explode on themselves or, or some other thing, we wouldn't say, oh, that was terribly violent. We'd, we'd, that person would probably be on television. Oh, the hero who saved so many innocent lives. In a sense, that's how this was viewed in, in the Old Testament in those circumstances. You're saving so many lives because you're preventing people from being pulled astray into death. They understood the seriousness, the gravity of what it means to have someone come and try to pull people away from the Lord. And, and so Paul, in extension, as a Pharisee, as a leader of the people of God in this time, he looks back and sees all the time that people have chased after idols and the judgment that came upon the people of Israel. And we were thinking about that in our last series. He looks at all that and says, I'm going to stop these Christians because they're leading people to worship Jesus, not the one true God, because what, this Jesus person, who is he? And he goes out and persecutes the church. It's not until Jesus actually causes Paul to have to come face to face to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That Paul realizes, wait a second, I've missed it. We should be worshiping Jesus because Jesus is God. But he doesn't get that. And so based on what he knows, he's doing the zealous thing for the Lord. So for example, Acts 8, the stoning of Stephen, Acts 8, 1, we're told that Saul is, is watching over the stoning of Stephen and Saul, that is Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Paul's right in the thick of that. And Paul's point as he's bringing this up isn't one to say, wow, I'm so glad I was persecuting the church. He's, he's realized that this is a horrible thing that he's done. He's not advocating people to go on and persecute the church. But he's saying, if you're going to lean on to the Old Testament law as your hope and your salvation rather than Jesus, well, understand this, whatever you do, I did more down to the point of actually overseeing the execution of those that would try to lead people to Jesus. Whatever you come up with to, to say that, that you're pious, that your law-keeping is going to save you, I did more. And Paul would challenge us, I believe, today too, because there's an awful lot of things that we try to do to demonstrate our zeal, even good things that become the thing that we trust in instead. Paul was trusting in his persecution of the church to demonstrate his righteousness. And he says, I, I kept every law. I, I was blameless. Now, of course, Paul knows that the law itself exposed his sin. But he says, as far as the way that is normally practiced, where the understanding is you do these laws and you keep these laws, and even if your heart isn't right when you're keeping the law, that you're still keeping the law, the way that they were actually practicing it as opposed to the way that God intended it, he was blameless, he says. Can you top that? What do we hold on to to say that we're blameless? What do, do we hold on to thinking that's somehow going to make us a better Christian? And, and some of it overlaps with where we were before. He became a Pharisee. He was raised up and he becomes a Pharisee. And sometimes it's 
we're thinking, well, you know, I, it's time for me to be a, a better Christian, so I'm going to earn some kind of degree or, or go to some kind of training. Good things, again. I, I hope many people do, but not for the reason that somehow then I'm going to be a better Christian, that somehow I'm more righteous. Maybe it's a devotional practice. Great thing if we make a habit of reading God's Word and praying daily. We should do that. May it not be, well, I'm better than those that don't. Let it slip out. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I couldn't help you just now. I, I was busy doing my daily devotionals. Do you do daily devotionals? Oh, you don't? Okay, I'll pray for you. Maybe it's tithing. Now, you say, oh, the pastor's going to suggest that tithing isn't necessary. <laughs> Wait, I need to write this down. This doesn't usually happen, right? You know, one of the things that, I, that always troubles me is when, and I've never been to a church that has skipped this entirely, and I don't mean to criticize because that can become a whole other can of worms, but I think we need to be careful when we invite people up to give their tithing testimonies. You know, why do, we, why do churches do that? Why is that a time-tested way to increase tithing? Well, someone comes up and says, well, we now give 10% and everything's gone pretty well. Maybe we even, you know, our household, everyone in the house got a promotion. Everything's going great. In fact, then someone came and offered me more money for my house and I moved to a bigger house and and why, why is that done? Well, it's done because then maybe more people will tithe. And indeed, God calls us to give. But sometimes we hold on to that like a badge. I'll hear someone say, well, you know, we tithe in our household. And it's sort of, well, I'm glad you do, but please don't tell me. I don't want to know that. Not because it's bad, it's good. But may we not put that out there. Jesus says to give in secret. Why do we do that? Because it's not what's making us a good Christian or a bad Christian. It's part of what happens as the Holy Spirit works on us that he enables us to start looking at our resources, even our earthly resources, and say, I'd like to give to support the work of the church. It's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't earn salvation. It doesn't make us better than the Christians still trying to figure out how to sort out their finances. Even the things that we do that are pleasing to God, even the things that we do that God has commanded us to do, may we not do them in such a way that they elevate us and make us feel important that they, even worse, make other people feel unimportant or rejected, maybe wonder if they really are saved. Now, sometimes people really do need to wonder if they're, they've been saved. They, they aren't doing any of the things God calls them to do, and they should in their own hearts say, is the Spirit really working in my life? That's a, that's a fair question, but so often we turn it into, You're not, you haven't achieved the level of spiritualness that I have are you really a Christian? Citizens of heaven, citizens of joy, should have joy in the process of the Holy Spirit moving us to where we should be. And we should move there. We should read the Bible daily. We should tithe. We should keep God's commands. We should be kind to our neighbor. We should love God with our whole heart. We should, as we confessed earlier, during the confession we heard that passage from Matthew where Jesus is talking about giving everything, just running, just full force. I want the kingdom of heaven. That should be where we are, but most of us aren't there yet. None of us are truly there yet. 
But we can have joy because our citizenship, our status isn't in that. Now, why would these Judaizers want to make things harder? If, if, if these practices that weren't part of the new covenant really could be part of the new covenant or not, wouldn't you just err on the side of them not being? Because why do I want more rules that I have to keep? Does anyone here love it when you have to do more stuff? You go to work and the boss says, there's 10 new regulations you need to comply with as you're doing your work today. You go to school and the teacher says, uh, you know, before you get away with this on your, on your assignments, now you need to do a whole bunch more. You need to write longer essays. You need to make sure that all the spelling is correct or you're just going to fail automatically. No one wants that, right? Why would the Judaizers want that then? Why were they making it more difficult? I think it comes down to this. Let them feel important. They'd done it. Just like Paul had. And they wanted to brag about it. They wanted it to be crucial to what it meant to be a Christian because they had already done it. Not everyone else had already done it. And so it gave them importance. Economists talk about a term called sunk cost. Has anyone heard that term? It's a really helpful concept, I think. And it basically talks about what we often say, uh, the cliche, throwing good money after bad. The idea is, you, you know, you go into a project that isn't working and you say, but I put so much money into it, I'm going to put more money into it because I can't possibly let it fail. Thinking about this, it made me think about something that used to be a lot more familiar than it is now. Anyone recognize that there? Blue light special. What was a blue light special? Where was it, I should say? Kmart. Yeah, Kmart. And so the blue light special would go on. They'd announce over the PA system in the building, attention Kmart shoppers, there's a blue light special and such and such. And everyone would go over because, oh boy, that's a great deal. Well, Kmart and Sears, which are one company, strike me as maybe an example of sunk cost in action because uh, one thing that's been observed over the years is when you have a company failing and another company failing, often they come up with this great idea to merge because if they put all their assets together and then get some more people to invest, everything will be good, even if they don't change anything. And that's basically what we saw over the last couple of decades to the point where there isn't a single Sears or Kmart in our entire region they just kept throwing money into it. They didn't change. They were still dirty. They were still low on inventory. They did add the blue light back. That was nice. But, you know, they didn't really change. And so it was just throwing more money into it and saying, well, if we throw enough money into it and we combine enough money, it's going to work. I think for the Judaizers, that's where they were. They're saying, well, if we just keep doing this righteousness, we're going to be above everybody else. Never mind that no one can fulfill God's law perfectly. If we just keep throwing our, our attempts at it, it's going to work out and we're going to be on top because we're the ones doing it and all those other people, those foolish heathens, aren't. So we want to cling to these things so that we can feel important, to make an attempt to hold on to it. And, and you would expect that Paul would do the same, except for a crucial difference, which is that he'd encountered, he'd encountered face-to-face Jesus. And when he did... He realized he couldn't hold on to all that stuff. And that's what we see, verse 7. Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul looks at all those things he listed out, which are an incredibly impressive resume for someone under the Old Testament covenant, someone who had been raised up as he did, someone like many of the people who are reading the letter. Whatever high school you'd think was most impressive, whatever college you would think was most impressive, whatever line of work after college you think is most impressive, whatever neighborhood you live in or or style of house or car or, or, or whatever else you could throw in there you think would make an impressive life that people should be impressed by, Paul's listing those things out. And here's what he reflects as he thinks about that. He says he counts it loss. He's not going to throw good money after bad. That money's gone. It's sunk cost. It can't be brought back. But he doesn't just say that. Oh, well, it was good for its time. He says, I look at it now, and I count it rubbish. Or, or maybe a better translation would be excrement. That's actually probably a better translation of it. And it's not, you could even use a less kind word to translate it from the Greek if you wanted. It's really bad. It's, it's sewage. It's maybe the combination of the sewage from the bathroom and from the kitchen. You throw it down the, the garbage disposal, all the, the food that is spoiled and, and bad and going to make you sick. In other words, in, incidentally, stuff that only fit for some wild dog out on the edge of town. You throw that all out there, the wild dogs want to eat it. The people at the time didn't really care for dogs. Dogs were a nuisance. They, they came and attacked your livestock. They came and scavenged. They, they weren't pets for the Jews and for many of the peoples of that time. So, so when he calls earlier on the teachers of the law dogs, he's not complimenting them. He's not talking to dog, dog lovers here. And then when he goes down here, this isn't an, an accident. He's this is a combined insult here to say all this goes together. They, they think that they're so pure and so righteous, they're following all the dietary laws, they're doing all this stuff. Well, guess what? They're eating stuff that is unclean. The worst of stuff, stuff that even the Gentiles won't eat. They might as well just be going out to the sewage plant and saying, hey, just scoop me up some and give it to me. That, that's what Paul says his righteousness looks like. Why? This is good stuff. And, and some of the things we've been talking about, they're good things that Christians should do. Why would we speak of them that way? Well, because Paul looks back at his zeal and he realizes it was misplaced zeal. He put his faith in, if I'm just zealous enough for the Lord, then the Lord will love me and so I'll go kill people for the Lord. And he says, wait a second here. It's led me away from the gospel, not towards it. Let me away from the Messiah, not towards it. And it's going to do the same to you, you Philippians. If you follow this, you're not going to be citizens of joy because you're going to be so busy trying to, to race in a path of righteousness that's somehow human-made that you're somehow going to create in yourself some kind of righteousness that you might as well just be a dog out on the edge of town eating sewage. 
Or may we instead say, okay, I had all this stuff. It's, it, it can't, whatever good I've done, it's not going to get me anywhere with God. Only he can. And then we run to the kingdom instead. What does God provide? He provides what we see in verse 3. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We see this language actually used throughout the Old Testament too because here's the thing. I've been talking about Old Testament, New Testament. The Old Testament actually agrees with Paul. It was misunderstood. We see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel over and over again talk of not just the circumcision that the Jews did, this ritual practice to say, oh, I'm part of the people of God, but the circumcision of the heart, circumcision of the spirit. What's God doing doing on the inside? That's what matters to the Lord. He'd been saying it for millennia to them. They've been missing it. Paul says, who are the circumcised? Who are, in other words, those set apart? Who went to the really good high school? Those who worship the Lord, Jesus. That's who. Notice how he describes it in verse 3. Paul says several things. He says we worship in the Spirit. In other words, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us and enable us to worship because even our worship is impure. And if we try to make worship some way to get in favor with God, well, then we're just doing more self-righteousness and self-promotion. We allow the Spirit to work in us in worship. We glory not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments, not in how well we can worship or how many things we can brag about being a Christian or how good our life looks, but we glory in Jesus, he says. In other words, we place our confidence not in our own flesh, in our own being, in our own doing. And what does that do? It does what Paul says in verse 10 brings about our salvation, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, Paul isn't merely just obsessed with the idea of having his body raised from the dead. No, what he's using the resurrection to symbolize there is everything that we receive in the salvation that Jesus gives us. Status as citizens of heaven, as God's family, adopted sons and daughters of God. That's what matters just like those in Matthew that Jesus talks about, that run to go and get the thing of great value and leave behind the things that are in comparison worthless. I discard everything that I'm holding on to, all these things I'm carrying along thinking, these things are of value. God will like me because of these things. God will love me because of these things. Other Christians will like me and love me because of these things. Am I taking those things and just throwing them away or am I hanging on to them? Probably for... I would imagine all of us, it's a little bit of both. There are things that we hold on to. There are things that we let go of. But here is a call that we recognize that joy that we had at the beginning of this message, that joy that we were called to last week to rejoice. Why do we have that joy? Because all those things, because we're constantly stressing over them and trying to somehow achieve them, all those things don't really do anything for us. We can start with joy. We can start with understanding righteousness comes from God and God alone. We can start to make less of what we've done and make more of what Jesus has done. And when we do that, we approach everything God calls us to with joy because we know that he's already done the work of bringing us into his kingdom. I want to be someone who makes much less of what I do and more of what he's done. And may 
that be true for all of us. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, you have not only come into the world and, and lived the perfect sinless life that we always miss, fulfilled every law far better than we could ever imagine, but then you took our punishment and received death, death that we deserved. And yet somehow I cling to things thinking somehow I can be important or I can be meaningful or or I can somehow cause you to care about me because of what I do. May I see those things that I do as rubbish in comparison to the all-surpassing, amazing works that you have done. And may I recognize what is of true value, what, is, what gives me true joy, what gives me hope, what even enables me to then move forward in doing things that are pleasing to you is not myself and not my accomplishments and not my strength, but you and your grace, your grace that empowers us by your Spirit to do what you've called us to do. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.